Welcome to the 2SER Book Club, where every week we open up a new book and help you discover something to read, no matter what your taste. Here's Andrew and Tess. Andrew, good morning. Hey Tess, how are you? I'm going really well. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm good. I'm reading some really exciting stuff coming up. Uh, Sydney Writers Festival program drops this week, so... (gasps) Uh, yeah, if if you are a person who, say, likes Australian writing, like I do, you'd be excited. I love Sydney Writers' Festival. I didn't mm. realise the program was out this week. Yeah, it drops on Thursday. Ah, oh, my God, that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Day mm-hmm. made. All right, you're out. We're done. I'm happy. <laughs> Good. No, <laughs> what are we talking about this week? Okay, look, today I've got something of a, a larrikin crime adventure from screenwriter and novelist Andy Muir. Uh, so Andy has credits on a stack of Aussie hits, uh, like Na- Navy's written for Neighbours, Home and Away... Uh, and also the Underbelly series, which he's um, actually won awards, um, but he also has uh, crime novels starring one Lockie Munro, and these sort of carry on that style of high-octane Aussie, Aussie drama. Uh, so today I'm going to be talking about Hiding to Nothing, which is the latest Lockie Munro uh, oh. yeah, mystery. So Lockie Munro, he's a, he's a humble painter from Newcastle. He's the sort of bloke that a politician might call a battler. (laughs) That is, until they figure out what he's been up to, uh, and then they're going to either distance himself from him or probably go into business with him. (laughs) Pick one. It's one of the two. Mm, Pick your politician. So when we meet Lockie at the beginning of Hiding to Nothing, he's got a sawn-off shotgun pointed in his face. Oh. And who knew at the time, but he'd come to miss those halcyon days. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Hiding to nothing, it pitches the reader into the seedy world of Newcastle crime and the sweaty world of Newcastle painting during a hot summer. Um, And, you know, Newcastle's a beautiful city. It's not seedy. But, you know, this sort of sets up the idea that every city's going to have a seedy underworld, and especially port cities where all sorts of uh, interesting things can come in on the ships from overseas. Exactly. I love the idea, you know, beautiful by day, seedy by night. That's what I'm getting at the moment. Yeah. So that's you've got that kind of kind of grunge noir element. This is definitely, this is almost the opposite where you've got, everything is in this, this harsh sunshine of a really, really hot summer, like hotter than anything we know it feels from the way Andy's written it. Um, and, and look, so the, the thing is, Lockie's a painter and he wants to play it straight, but he's constantly being dragged by circumstance and fate into the dodgier parts of town. And so then when his father arrives, after 20 years in prison, it seems like a family reunion. It's only going to happen in the most dangerous of circumstances and Lockie's never going to get to the beach for that swim. <laughs> That's something you notice, like, it's so hot, and he keeps saying, and I really just need a swim. And then three chapters later, he's thinking it again, and you realise, my gosh, you just keep getting dragged into events, (laughs) and you never got that swim, to the point that, as a reader, I wanted to go for a swim. (laughs) I can feel that. That feels like something that we all resonate with on some level, and things just keep happening until all of a sudden you're like, well, three years ago, I promised myself I'd go for a swim. Exactly. So Hiding to Nothing, it's this terrific character-driven novel, and it has this punchy style that turns the pages for you, and a solid balance between this really entertaining dialogue and Lockie's introspection. Uh, And it's actually when we're in Lockie's head that the novel comes, uh, comes in a perspective, and it reveals sort of really how anyone could be stuck in this grey area between the law. So if you think about Lockie's apprentice, Max, he's this... A cool guy who's barely staying afloat on an apprentice wage. 
All the clients that they meet when they're painting houses are these kind of tree changes, gentrifying old suburbs for the quick flip. And like people on a working wage just can't keep up. And you have this circumstance where it's like, well, of course, you know, as we bounce from one misadventure to the next, it's hard to go past the fact this world isn't designed for people to survive, let alone succeed. I think that's something that probably hits very hard with a lot of people too in Sydney. And that's exactly it. There is so much talk about how it can be hard for so many people just to get by. And so we have this interesting circumstance where Lockie is constantly talking about he just wants to just wants to paint. He just wants to be on the level. Why do people keep thinking he's a crim? But then it's impossible to not just do a little bit of work on the on the side. Mm. One one detail about hiding to nothing that's not apparent until it's pointed out to you is that the way violence is handled in the novel. So when I spoke with Andy for Final Draft, uh, we got to chatting off mic about the tropes of crime and mystery drama. And and one thing that he said that was important to him in crafting Lockie Munro stories is that there isn't that usual lurid violence against women that fuels many a crime drama. Fridging. We've talked about this in the past, Tess, yeah. <laughs> so, fridging fridging is that concept of the dead partner, the dead female partner, um, famously stuffed in a fridge in a Green Lantern uh, comic that was that, that is then used as a motivation for the male hero. Uh, and, the, you know, this dead girlfriend, it's sort of shorthand for the revenge plotline. These characters are seldom more than two-dimensional clothes hangers for the male character's gritty final scene with also usually a male villain. Mm. So these these plot devices are not only tired, they're also dangerous. Um, if we think back to last week with the discovery of the body of Dr. Uh, Preeti Reddy, uh, the media kind of struggled to report, I think, respectfully on what was seemingly a really tragic murder committed by a man against an innocent woman with a whole lot of circumstances around it. Um, with, um, you know, the way that case was playing out. And instead, we got these lurid descriptions of the crime scene and headlines that kind of evoked the likes of Pulp Fiction writers. And just to clarify, like, I'm not, I'm not going to repeat these descriptions here. They're out there for people to search them. Um, but the upshot was that Prithi Reddy, her life and her memory became this sort of plot point in a voyeuristic public mystery. And it was utilising the language and the tropes of kind of cliched crime writing. You're right. Like, it wasn't actually. And now you've pointed it out. You're right. You know, we we did see all the headlines about shocking plot twist. Like, this is not a plot twist. This is someone's mm. life. Yeah, and that sort of writing is normalised by uh, the way a genre can become cliché. There is amazing crime writing out there. Andy Muir's Hiding to Nothing. His series has, you know, it's entertaining. There are really interesting ways at looking at Australian culture. There's a whole lot going on. There is amazing crime writing across the board. But then there are also these clichéd tropes of the white hat male coming in and saving the day, often revenging uh, a, a dead woman or protecting a helpless woman. And those tropes of, of you know, helpless femaleness do not further any literature, but they also create this mindset amongst people who love that sort of literature that somehow it's just a part of life and that we don't blink when it happens. And that's, that's what we saw play out, I think, in some newspapers and the media last week. So we had uh, that's really interesting then to have a case where an author is thinking about that while writing a crime novel. Yeah. It's it, I think it can be really hard as well because these are tropes, these are clichés. There's a reason something becomes a cliché. One, 
it does reflect a certain aspect of society. Um, so it, it's been something like 70, uh, you know, seven, well, in the last 12 months, 70 women have been murdered uh, in Australia or have died violently um, in what we presume was murder at the hands of a man. And that's sort of a pretty common figure year after year, at least one woman a week dying. Uh, or Sorry, being killed, being killed uh, through violence by a partner or another male. And so this is a, a reality of life. So in, in some ways, crime fiction is reflecting that. But in other ways, the way it's written about, the language that's used, is reflecting it in a way that normalises it and makes it a device in something that we like to see play out. We like to see a crime play out and the good guys... Guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. The good guys saving the day. Um, So... Having crime that subverts that, having crime that just avoids it, and that's all Andy Muir's done here. He has avoided using tropes. He has written a really pacey, really interesting, really fun crime fiction without using those tropes. Certainly a lot, to, I think, to think about, especially coming off the back of International Women's Day. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's important then to to just acknowledge when this happens, to be aware when you're reading of how how certain plot devices are being used to make you feel something and to make you react to the story in a certain way, and then just appreciating people that are doing it a little bit different. Amazing. Uh, do we know what we're talking about next week? I thought next week we might talk about Peggy Frew's Island. So Peggy Frew uh, got a lot of attention for Hope Farm, her last novel, and uh, uh, her new novel is really exciting. I'm about halfway through it right now. So uh, I thought I'd bring it in for you. Can't wait. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Tess. You've been listening to the 2SER Book Club. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Tess Connery and Andrew Popel. And a big shout out to Michaela Savage for graphic design and artwork. If you're enjoying the book club, why not subscribe and get new episodes delivered straight to your phone every week? If you want more books, you can tune in to Final Draft or subscribe to Final Draft Great Conversations Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. To keep up with everything happening at the station and discover more stories, ideas and music, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at 2SER.